Well, <clears throat> uh, Olivier, good to see you again. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Uh, and that uh, we can continue on with uh, with our talks. It's interesting um, that you mentioned the word meta. Uh, that I'll, I'll tell you this about it. First off, that the practice of metta and karuna mudita upeka was a known practice uh, in the time of the Buddha. That there were people who um, had been, uh, let us say, practicing spiritual things just like he was, the Buddha, uh, in those days, and that he practiced all of the various things that were available to him and then found uh, that they weren't giving the cor correct answer. And so he, he figured out something for himself, which is now the Four Noble Truths, the Eight Four Noble Path, and the practice of Anapanasati that goes with that. Now, much of what he had already learned, he incorporated into his um, teaching that there's only a very few things that were absolutely original to the Buddha. Uh, even the uh, deep breathing part of the Anapanasati was already known at, at that time. But he put a lot of stuff together into a package that made it really fit. <clears throat> In that process, there were then many students who would come and become monks. Or there were times when monks would have conversations with other groups um, of uh, mendicants or, or bhikkhus, um, other people practicing, some of who were practicing metta. And so there is actually a sutta where the Buddha talks about metta uh, because a group of his monks go out and talk to people who were doing that and then bring the story back to him. Now the thing that's very interesting is, is that even this other group of practitioners who were practicing what they referred to as metta in that time also recognized that the mind has to be free from hindrances. That the mind free from hindrances um, is absolutely essential for the first jhana. And uh, the Buddha even has a story about that he was uh, able to do first jhana when he was uh, a teenager. There's a story about it. In fact, the story is, is generally referred to as uh, the story of under the rose apple tree. Uh, that he was sitting as a teenager under the rose apple tree uh, and that later he reflected upon that when he um, had gotten actually uh, quite weak because he hadn't been eating because he was practicing austerities. And when he reflected that this austerity practice that he was doing also did not bring any relief from suffering even though they had claimed that it would. In fact, the, uh, the remnants of the group that he worked with is now called um, the Jain religion in India. 
and they have a particular uh, holy man from that time uh, named Mahavira, but Mahavira is known in the suttas under the name of Naganataputta, but we pretty well known it was the same uh, guy. All right, so with uh, the fact that there were these other practices and that he knew about jhana, and then when he practiced with the Jains, he found out that what they were teaching was is that if you burn off old bad karma quickly, then you can be free of the old bad karma. And that uh, the Buddha recognized that, no, the new action that you're taking to burn off the old bad karma is just new actions with its own new karma. That they're not doing things to burn off old bad karma at all. And then there's another sutta where he is actually asking this group of monks, how do you know that there is old bad karma from the past? How do you know that? How, and then the next question was, how do you even know that you were in the past to do action that you have to suffer from now? They didn't have any answer to that. They just said, oh, our teacher tells us that we were in the past and that we were behaving in the past. So there's a lot of practices that are going on in the time of the Buddha, including metta. And so when the Buddha figured, started to figure things out, he said, you know, this first jhana has some value. It has benefit. And he recognized that it wasn't that the first jhana didn't do what he was expecting it to do. It's that everyone then, and you can ex pretty well expect everyone now to do the same thing that, oh, well, if first John is great, second John is better, third John is even better than that, the fourth John is even better than that, and the higher the number you go, the better things are. And the Buddha points out that that's actually not the case, that the case is, is that uh, the secret is the first jhana itself, and that that first jhana has to be developed as a skill so that you have the skill to be able to go into John uh, first jhana very easily and then to maintain and sustain that first jhana that that's the real skill that we need to develop is to be able to get into it quickly and to stay in it and what this actually means then is is that we need to be able to quickly detect if an unwholesome thought is in the mind and then throw it out because that's the hindrances that the people of the time of the Buddha knew that the hindrances or unwholesome thoughts had to be removed from the mind to practice metta and they also knew that the hindrances had to be uh, thrown out of the mind in order to practice first jhana okay here's the point the point is, is that in modern Western Buddhist meditation, the Mahasi method has more or less skipped over the part about uh, removing the hindrances from the mind and jumped straight into noting. But the Zen do that also. In fact, I've even heard the Zen people say, yeah, they have a dark night of the soul similar to the Mahasi method where the the, the meditator after getting very good at the noting 
then will go into misery, fear, disgust, maybe despair, and strong, strong desire to get out of this mess, okay? And that this point is not uh, really ever shown in the suttas, but it's in the Mahasi method, this dark night of the soul. And it seems to be the case because a lot of people, in fact, there are even websites now full of psychologists who for a fee will do crisis intervention where people have gotten themselves into a crisis with meditation. The reason that happens is, is because they come into meditation kind of already in a crisis. That's why they started meditation. But when they start the meditation, now what they're doing is they're noting in great detail their crisis, which makes it all the worse. And now it's a big crisis because they can see how big it is, where in the forward they couldn't see what the, what the crisis was. So getting back to this point about uh, the teachings of the Buddha is, is that the first thing that has to be done is to remove the hindrances from the mind, and this is a very active meditation. Once the hindrances are removed and the other jhana factors are brought together for the first jhana, and the student is in the state of first jhana, which has freedom from hindrances, sukha or pleasure, enthusiasm, um, called pity in the Pali, and also has the ability to apply his mind on the wholesome and keep it there. This is not a really, really big deal. People move in and out of first jhana uh, throughout their lives, depending upon circumstances. Uh, an example would be going to a great height or to a really beautiful thing, uh, like a sunset or um, uh, the Grand Canyon or something, and people will just go into a state of awe, just like, oh, wow, it's so big, and they don't much have any thoughts about it. So the mind just kind of goes blank, and they're in a state of awe or wonder. So this state of uh, first jhana is very normal, it's very natural as part of human existence. But we can't actually train for it, to train the mind to get into it easily, and to maintain it. Now that we've got that state, now the question is, well, what are we going to do about it? Most of the people in the West would think, oh, well, now that I've got first jhana, the only thing that I've got to do now is second jhana. That's the mistake that, that many people make. There's several mistakes. One is not cleaning the hindrances out. Another one is not taking the right effort to do it correctly. The other one is also that once the mind is free from hindrances, now what do we do? Well, the Buddha was actually quite clear about what is it that we do with uh, the mind that is now free from hindrances and is uh, fit for work. And that is now we're going to be doing noting, except that now we're going to be noting things that are wholesome rather than noting whatever there is, right? That if we note before the mind is wholesome, then we'll be spending time noting unwholesome stuff. But if we've gotten the mind completely wholesome, then what we have to note is wholesome. This is, I mean, this is like a mind-blowing point. 
that what we were actually going to start paying attention to are the very things that are most wholesome. And one of the things that would be wholesome then would be this first jhana, free from hindrances, is a wholesome state. It's wholesome, it's pleasurable, it's satisfying, it's, um, it promotes eagerness and enthusiasm. All right, so that means that if we're going to be noting, we should be noting these things. Or when we're investigating, we can investigate these things, which is the same thing as noting. Noting is more or less a strange word for investigating. And so the investigation would be in the sense of how is my sati? How is my right effort? How is my investigation? These are parts of the Eightfold Noble Path as well as the jhana factors. How is my joy? How is my uh, security? Do I feel safe and secure? And we can note that and say, yes, I do, I do, I do. I feel safe and secure. Why? Because we're free from the hindrances. If we uh, were not safe and secure, then whatever is making us safe, unsafe and insecure would in fact be a hindrance to being safe and secure. So this is the, uh, the kind of uh, noting that we do that actually not only is very wholesome itself, but it helps maintain this first jhana so that we can get into that state of wholesomeness and then maintain it for longer and longer periods of time. And we want to be able to practice this also throughout the day, not just once a day, leaving 23 hours a day for hindrances, but we want to start looking for hindrances in the mind whenever they arise or whenever they occur. So that means that we want to actually intentionally practice several times or actually many times a day to stop and practice for 10 minutes. Let's get the mind really wholesome. Let's get into a great, uh, wonderful state. Now, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about this in a book that he wrote that, uh, or actually didn't write it. It was just a, um, a talk that he gave that was translated uh, into English after it was transcribed from the, from the talk into Thai language. The name of this work is called Void Mind. And what he's pointing at in there is, is that whatever we do, let's do with this void mind, this mind that's void of hindrances or unwholesome states. Um, a lot of people think, oh, um, I'm, here's an example. The guy is watching YouTube, whatever it is, he's watching YouTube on the internet. And then he has the thought, I should be meditating. Right? right? But he doesn't meditate. He doesn't go uh, because his thought, I should be meditating, means that he's got to go sit down someplace in a cross-legged position and close his eyes and, and uh, practice. But in fact, um, he doesn't, he sits there at the YouTube feeling bad because he ought to go meditate, but he actually would rather watch the, uh, the YouTube. So now he's watching the YouTube and he's feeling bad and guilty because he's not meditating. Mm -hmm. Right? 
Is this typical or what? I mean, people do this possibly every day. Now, here's the issue. The issue is, is that meditation seems to be a great big deal. He's got to put down the YouTube and go someplace and sit down cross-legged and perform some sort of rituals or whatever, and then he will call that meditation, which he should be doing. But it would be very, very easy for him while he is sitting at the YouTube. And if the thought, oh, you should be meditating, comes up, the immediate answer to that is sati, taking a deep breath while the video is still running. YouTube is still on. But now, instead of paying attention to the YouTube and and while I'm arguing myself about meditation, I can take a deep breath. And everything is fine, and I can come and start doing a bit of meditation, even while the YouTube is running. I'm not paying quite so much attention to it, but I can do that for three or four seconds. I get myself back into a good state, or maybe ten seconds, to get myself into a good state, and continue to watch the video. Mm-hmm. Another example of that would be that I've got to write an email to the boss. The boss has written me an email and say, you got to do this, that, and the other thing. What about all of this? And I sit down to the email, and then I say, I don't want to write this email, or this is a whole bunch of work. Well, instead of saying, oh, I should meditate, the answer to that is right then and there in front of that email that you have, that you're writing to the boss and taking a deep breath, getting herself back into a really nice state again <sighs> to just to chill out give ourselves what uh Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa would call a little nibbana moment mm-hmm. to chill baby chill just be cool and to now when I get myself back into a good state I can continue writing that email and while I'm still continuing to write that email if I run across a section where I start to feel bad again, I don't like this, I'm, uh, I'm confused, I don't know what to say to the boss, then that's another opportunity for to remember, oh, if I'm going to write emails, I'm going to do it when I'm in a really good state. I'm not going to write emails when I'm all screwed up in the mind. And so again, just sitting in front of that unfinished email, I can take a deep breath, I can do that email. That email is not a big problem for me. And so we can start talking ourselves into feeling really good. We can get all the tension and anxiety out of the system, maybe 10 seconds, maybe a minute or so. And then I can come back and I can finish that email. Now I've had two interruptions in that email. And so it may have taken me longer, but it's also possible that I had two interruptions in an email and I still finished that email in about the same amount of time or even in less time because I spent all of my time not writing the email in a really joyous, happy state or getting into it to where most people will continue writing that frustrating, difficult email, struggle with it, feel bad, finish the email. It may not be top quality, but at least they got it done. But they were miserable while they were doing it. Yeah. Okay. So this is a way of beginning to uh, to look at our practices. Is that our practice is not a 
a, a great big deal about going off someplace and sitting down and doing a meditation. The actual simple thing to do is to just take that email off the mind, enjoy the moment, tell ourselves how marvelous things are right now, recognize that whether I finish that email or not, I'm still okay. That email is not going to uh, be the cause of my suffering. Okay? And so when we're practicing like this, that means that we, in fact, have many opportunities to throughout the day to practice. And so I would recommend that students start practicing more often rather than one hour for a long time, because, in fact, for most people, their attention span is not good for, for an hour. It's only good for about 20 minutes in general. Our educational system has taught us that. And so if the attention span is only good for about 20 minutes, then let's use a 20 minute span for our practice of Anapanasati more often. Maybe we can do uh, that hour in three sessions at 20 minutes, or we can do it in ten se uh, six sessions of 10 minutes, or we could even do it in 10 sessions, each only lasting six minutes, because we're getting pretty good at what we're doing. We can get ourselves into a really good state within six minutes, then we can do that 10 times a day, and we still haven't spent but an hour, but now 10 times throughout the day, I wound up feeling marvelous as opposed to only once a day in that long sitting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is the way of looking at it is, is that we have to get ourselves into a wholesome state so that we can note things and note them as they are wholesome. Now, while you're actually in that state of noting wholesome things, we can note, a, note things that are associated with the Eightfold Noble Path like, how's my sati? How's my investigation? Is this energy or what? Have I got the effort to do this? How's my enthusiasm? Okay, so these are the things that we begin to investigate while we're in first jhana. Eventually, we will get around to investigating other things like um, how the mind works. We can begin to look at feelings as, um, let us say, a mechanism because now we're looking at feelings, not in the sense of the way that most people look at feelings or bad feelings, anger, sadness, grief, despair, disgust, fear, uh, grief. These are the kinds of feelings that in the first jhana we don't have any of. We don't have those kind of feelings. We have a different kind of feeling. What kind of feelings do we have? Safety security, contentment, satisfaction. And that satisfaction goes into a joy of exuberance. Exuberance and um, uh, elation. Okay. Uh, even to the state of euphoria. So the state of euphoria, but that euphoria has that quality of the confidence. The euphoria would be the kind of thing that people would have right after they, within moments of finding out that they won the lottery. And it feels like an entire huge weight of their whole life is lifted off of them. Now I've got enough money for my whole life, okay? And so they go into a great deal of euphoria. That's quite dangerous for them at that time. 
because they could lose all of that money in a euphoric state. So the euphoria that we have uh, is valuable only when we actually manufacture it from within the mind rather than going into euphoria because we've won a prize or that we uh, have uh, uh, gotten a promotion, gotten a new job. These are the kinds of things that we have that give us that state of euphoria, that state of um, power, all right? But it wasn't that new job or the gallery or any of that uh, on the outside that gave us that state of euphoria is something that we manufactured on the inside. We chose to feel euphoric. Somebody else could have gotten that same job and he wouldn't feel euphoric or uh, uh, like a winner because he's gotten a new job. He'll say, hmm, I don't want that job. I had two interviews and I've got even a better job. So this job I don't want. All right. So it's not the job or the event or the lottery that gives the euphoria. It is, in fact, something that we can bring on through our proper practice. So that euphoria now is something that should be investigated in the sense of the feelings to look at how we feel to look at the fact that we feel really good, that this is fine, this is great, I feel really nice now. So these are the kinds of things that we want to note, pay attention to, is really, really good feelings, and um, uh, our exuberance, our uh, mindfulness, all of those kinds of things are the things that are really wholesome, that are worth paying attention to after we get the mind free from hindrances. So the point now then is, is that these hindrances are getting unwholesome thoughts that are also accompanied with unwholesome states of mind and even unwholesome feelings and even unwholesome bodily re responses to that. For instance, if we become uh, uh, afraid or shy or something like that, we tend to close down. We don't breathe well. Because we don't breathe well, we'll feel uh, that we're tired. So we go into a meeting, and the guy uh, at the front is just talking and talking and talking and talking, and I'm not particularly list, uh, interested in what he has to say. I get bored. When I get bored, I get tired. And so in these, in these meetings, people get tired for no reason at all, but they do because they get themselves in that state because they're uh, in an unwholesome situation. I don't like what's going on right now. So if you get yourself into a boring meeting, the thing to do is, is that, okay, take that as an opportunity to gladden the mind, to be sharp, to be alert. That in fact, if that guy is boring to the whole group, he needs at least one person in the audience who is at least enthusiastic. <laughs> so this is the right way to practice. Most people think that meditation is going deep into meditation. Where this is not going deep, this is going bright. This is brightening the mind throwing the hindrances out and being, uh, uh, and getting to the state where, um, in a way, we're, we're saying that we can give metta to ourselves in these 
uh, gladdening thoughts, these wholesome thoughts that we have. In fact, you could say that all wholesome thoughts are directly related with metta when metta is wholesome. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but the emphasis with metta is on loving kindness for someone on the outside. But we cannot give someone loving kindness on the outside if, number one, they don't have any loving kindness, and number two, really inside, I don't have any loving kindness either. That now when I say may all beings be happy, I don't really mean it. I've got no enthusiasm in it. I don't really have any strong intention um, in a way, you could say, I don't have any skin in the game. Are we not putting in the right effort to it? So even if we're going to practice metta in a wholesome way, it has to be done, number one, free from uh, hindrances, and number two, it has to be done enthusiastically so that we really mean it. And so the way to do that, the way to do metta in the beginning is to get metta on the inside of ourself. Once we have that metta on the inside, only then can we share it on the outside with others. And so whenever students talk about it, about metta, I always make this point that, hey, metta is actually more of a natural outcome of correct anapanasati practice and that the metta will come quicker, easier, faster, and uh, more enthusiastically with Anapanasati than if the student merely practices some uh, metta practice that uh, has been, let us say, uh, developed within the context of Western Buddhism. Okay. So the real practice then is the practice of getting the mind cleaned out get the mind free from hindrances. If the mind is free from hindrances, then the kind of thoughts that we want to have are going to be wholesome. Now, I can make the point about the fact that in the first jhana, the mind is still working in the sense that we're still running dialogue. We still talk to ourselves. But now what we're talking about is only going to be talking in nurturing terms rather than critical terms. We're going to be talking in the sense of cooling down, not heating up. We're going to be uh, talking to ourselves in the sense of having done the job of removing the hindrances, and now that that job is done, there's no more jobs to do. That that email, in fact, is not a job to do. It's not a job. The job to do was to get the mind free from hindrances. Now that we have uh, have the mind free from hindrances, now that email becomes a joy. Okay, so in fact, in that way, we can think of that email as actually the object now of the meditation because that email is for someone on the outside. So having metta for the guy that you're writing the email to can only really be done if we're already in a really good mood. If somebody tries to do metta for the email guy uh, and not have the mind free from hindrances, then the metta is not going to be all of that valuable and it's not going to do much good while writing that email. 
And then the same thing is true if I'm in front of the guy and I'm talking in my mind about metta, but I don't really have uh, the freedom from the hindrances, then my metta is not going to be all of that good. It's only when I have great joy on the inside that my metta is going to have any real value. Okay. Um, think about it like this, that uh, um, a cake with icing. The meta practice is the icing on the cake. If you don't have the actual anapanasati, all you've got is the meta that uh, is used for decoration more than it is for um, uh, uh, nourishment or the taste. So this is the kind of way of looking at it is, is that meta is useful, it's valuable, it's wholesome when it is useful, valuable, and wholesome. Otherwise, metta may not be useful, valuable, or wholesome, but it's something that we wind up saying, oh, you should do it because I heard somebody say that you should do it. Mm -hmm. So, this is the way we have to, uh, uh, to work with this. This is the important point. Uh, the Buddha had a story about um, the cowherd. I'm not sure if I told you this story before or not. Yeah. The cowherd, you're right, he has to keep the cows in line because if he does not allow, uh, if he does not whack the cows to keep them in line, they'll go off and do some damage. But once he has the cows out of the village and he can put them in the pasture, now he can relax a bit because the cows are grazing. This is the place that we want to be in first uh, jhana, is when the cows are out grazing because they're all doing wholesome things. In this regard, that's the time also to do the metta. And the time not to do the metta is when the cows are in the village. Mm -hmm. Right? That's not the time to do the metta because the cows in the village, we have to keep them in line. We've got to whack them. We've got to keep them on the path got to keep them straight. We can't let them go uh, off to the side someplace. So this is how we can think of metta is incorporated into the Anapanasati practice only after we get into the first jhana. Because now in the first jhana we're developing other skills besides. An example of that is, is that we're developing mindfulness the skill of continuing to remember to stay in this state. We're developing the skill of right view, of being able to have correct discernment. We're developing the skill of right effort. These skills actually now, when they become uh, fruit, or when we become developed, these actually become items of the Sambhojana, or the seven factors of enlightenment so that the effort turns into energy. And the metta uh, would then be just part of the joy. It also has tranquility. It has uh, 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 unification of mind in the sense that now the mind is whole. You see, in that time when the person is, is writing the email and he's a bit struggling with it, then that means that he's uh, jumping around in his own mind. He's not unified. 
But when we have the mind free from the hindrances, then the cows actually will graze together in the sense that now the mind is organized and the Buddha calls this Sama Arya Samati or Right Noble uh, Samati that is often called concentration. But really, we don't concentrate the mind. What we're doing is we're organizing or bringing together the various components of the mind. That in fact, when the mind is in first jhana, it is in fact organized correctly. And when the mind is not in first jhana, that means that we're in hindrances. And that means that the mind is not organized correctly, but it is organized in a way that gives rise to the delusions of self, the delusions of greed, the delusions of wanting things we don't have, the delusions of not liking things. All right? But when the mind is organized and unified, then the mind is whole and it is free from those kinds of things. And so it becomes unity. Now, one of the qualities of unification of mind is, is that we don't lie. Why? Because if I'm lying, that means that I'm separating myself from the truth. And I've got a lie and the truth inside my brain. All right? I'm divided. If I'm confused, if I'm in doubt, then this is also something that will divide the mind. But when the mind becomes completely unified and completely whole, it's also quite cool. There's no conflict in there. Everything is organized correctly. And because it is, that allows great joy and satisfaction and security and comfort to come. Okay. Yep. Does it give you any idea about where we're going with this? Does this help you? Yeah. Um, how do you see um, the part about virtues and uh, renunciation? Like renouncing sensual pleasures and um, because that's also, I've read it, that's also part of being secluded first and then um, renouncing sensual de desires. What do you see that? I wouldn't call it re renunciation. Um, what I would call it would be, you see, renunciation is much more like a rule. You should do this. Um, it has also the quality of a vow, of taking a public statement or whatever. And so in that regard, renunciation means that we're getting rid of it because it, we have been told or we think that it is bad for us. Mm -hmm. We're not going to practice that. We're going to practice in the sense of with our own investigation, we can see right now, immediately, this is harmful. Right now, immediately, this is dangerous. And so I can throw this out right now. I don't have to renounce it. Mm -hmm. I don't have to tell myself, oh, you can't ever do that again. Oh, that's bad for you. Because that's just being a critical mind. We can be in a nurturing state of mind and say, oh, never mind, I don't need that right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's kind of a change in attitude from renunciation into um, uh, nurturing. That the Buddha actually says, in fact, that uh, renunciation 
is ordinary right view. Why? Because um, renunciation um, ripens in right view at the time when what we have renounced, now we actually want. Yeah. Okay, and so I've already had a vow of um, poverty, and yet I've just won the lottery somehow. Okay, now where's my renunciation? It always ripens in clinging. And so I did not, uh, do not recognize, uh, recommend for people to think of it in the terms of renunciation for the long term or off into the future, but rather to just see it right now that this is dukkha. Right now, this state of mind is unwholesome. Let's change it right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So we don't have to make any new rules. We're here, in fact, to uh, to throw out the rules. If there is only uh, if there is rules that we're going to abide by, there's only one rule that the Buddha has, which is in fact the entire teaching of the Buddha. And that one rule is dukkha, dukkha naroda. See the dukkha right here, right now, and come out of it right here, right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Over and over and over again, if you see that this is dukkha, if you see the danger in that thought, then you whack it and you pull it out. You, you, you shove it aside. You get it off of the, um, um, out, of, out of the food stall back onto the path. Okay, this is the way that we do it. So there's no renunciation in there, but rather it's always mindfully investigating for the wholesome. Mm -hmm. Keep practicing the wholesome. To keep looking for, is this thought wholesome or is it not wholesome? If it's a thought about the here now, it's wholesome. If it's thought about the past or the future, more than likely it's not. Yeah. So, do you have any questions about this? Um, yeah, I think I have to think about it a little bit more. <laughs> well, uh, while you're thinking about gladdening the mind, actually gladden the mind. Think mm -hmm. about, you can, you can talk yourself into feeling really good. Because you've been talking yourself into feeling bad your whole life, now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. Mm -hmm. To remove the hindrances. To get yourself into a good state. Yeah. And you can do that any time that you remember to, throughout the day. You don't have to have a formal practice of sitting on the floor someplace on a particular cushion with incense and little Buddha statues and all kinds of things. We don't need any of that. All we need is to remember, to cool off, to chill out, to take a deep breath and relax. Okay. Okay? I'm glad that you're nodding now. You're nodding and smiling. I think you're beginning to get it now. Good. Yeah. <laughs> beginning to wake up a little bit more. 
Yes, to wake up, to recognize, hey, I can come out of bad feelings right now. All I have to do is remember to look at what I'm doing. And if this is not wholesome, let's throw it out and do something that is wholesome, something that's useful, something that generates joy, makes life worth living. That it's not the promise, this is the delivery. <sighs> Finally come home. Come mm-hmm. home. Yeah. Well, you go practice this some more. Mm-hmm. Call me again, and oh. we'll go over it again and, and get it down so that you can bring some joy to your life. Thank Have you. Have practice. Okay? Alright. Alright. Well, let me, we'll see you later. See you later. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>